This is Mutant, and you're listening to Dialogues at the End of Democracy. Welcome back to Mutant. If you've been listening along so far, you know we are building here a dictionary, a vocabulary of the ideas, the concepts, and the words that together between them explain this moment of what we call democratic degeneration. So much of what we've been speaking of over the past few episodes, the thinkers we've been thinking with and alongside, engage with and are often preoccupied with the idea of the minority in a democracy. And yet fundamental to the very logic of the democracy is the majority principle that the majority decides for and on behalf of the collective. This majority poses arguably the greatest conundrum and the greatest problematic in democracy, at once the manifestation of a democracy's promise and the very figure that can run away with the idea of democracy itself. So we begin this episode on the letter M, examining two words. Both together illuminate this phenomenon in which the majority principle comes to be and how it plays out for a democracy. Ashwari, when we come to the figure of the majority, first, just to clarify at the very basic, do we mean a parliamentary majority? Do we mean an electoral majority? Or do we mean communities of majorities, what we might call a communal majority? Are they the same? Do do they live out in a democracy the same? This is uh, perhaps the most fundamental question that preoccupies uh, B.R. Ambedkar throughout his life, but gathers a particular uh, and a very central place, salience, in his thought in the 1940s. And one of Ambedkar's major points, in fact, his major contribution to political theory, as it were, is precisely his attempt to turn our attention away from a focus on the minorities, which he's often associated with, because he is, in fact, concerned with the sorts of power and constraint and oppressive social norms under which the minority lives. But really, the the real turn that Ambedkar makes in political theory is to draw attention to, in a very, very dramatic way, the problem of what we could call the majoritarian condition. And one interesting, uh, perhaps even galvanizing move he makes there is to split the majority into two. The majority is uh, especially in the democracies, are not one. We assume theoretically, philosophically, even normatively, that the majority constitutes a single body. Ambedkar argues that the majority lives in two bodies. One, as you were saying, is the political majority, the electoral majority, the majority that votes in a particular way and then brings a certain kind of political vision, political party or dispensation to power, to administrative and 
uh, legislative power to executive power above all. The other majority, Ambedkar argues, is the communal majority. This majority is hidden. It's, it acts surreptitiously. Its motivations are more enduring, more, in fact, more durable, and not, perhaps crucially, not adequately reflected, not even truthfully reflected in how it votes. Its commitments are rather oblique and its reasons are often, sometimes, in fact, um, if not always, antithetical to how it even votes. You could, you could assume that in a, in, a, in a thriving democracy, these two majorities would wholly overlap. That is to say, you could assume that their political commitments will be reflected in their electoral choices. But Ambedkar makes this galvanizing point when he argues that to understand a caste society, but not a caste society alone, any society which has refused to leave uh, the notion of religious power and mastery behind which has refused to leave mastery as a political value behind, will have this majoritarian condition to deal with, where the majority has split into two, one a political one, an electoral one, and the other a communal one, which let us call a moral or a moralistic majority. And it is with this splitting that we return to the heart of Ambedkar's constitutional vision. For B.R. Ambedkar, or, or as you see it, is majority, and I, I speak now of the communal majority, is that a technique? If so, what is it a technique of? What gives a communal majority in the same framework in which a political majority exists its power? I mean, in the, in the, in the post-war period... Uh, its power undoubtedly comes from a combination of caste status and economic gain. Uh, a lot of what we today can include, vast swaths of population that we can today include under communal majority, is not simply a majority that lives by certain uh, certain ritual precepts, certain religious beliefs, certain communal and cultural elements that it shares among you know its members. It has to be seen as a broader economic capitalist block. Uh, sometimes we, in a commonplace sense, sometimes we call it the middle class. And the fascinating thing uh, and the distinctive element uh, in, in a communal majority is that it can be driven on the one hand by an extremely archaic view of a religious universe and on the other hand it can be motivated by pulled to vote for parties that are immensely technocratic, uh, bureaucratically advanced and digitally cutting edge. In their, in their mobilization techniques. So in that sense, the communal majority or the majority is itself or must be seen as a technique of rule. It is not simply an ideology as an entire crop and generation of Marxist thinkers would once put it. I'm not sure that category even holds true for, for the 
complex set of motivations and desires that constitutes uh, what we today call the majoritarian coalition. And I want to emphasize this term, the majoritarian coalition, simply to, uh, simply to highlight the fact that this is not simply mappable to or this communal majority cannot be juxtaposed with its basic caste barebone structure. It's not simply ritual. It's not simply economy. It's a combination. And this combination produces also a class, perhaps even a racialized class, a combination of caste and class that we have come to uh, call in a rather innocuous way the middle class. But what is the middle class? Or, or perhaps to say, put it even more starkly, precisely because they are middle class, they become part of a class whose very constitution now is non-ideological, susceptible to, perhaps willfully susceptible to, and organized around a certain form of political obedience. Um, it's tethered to a low-intensity war between old kinds of conformisms, say to, con to religiosities and religious universes, and emerging markets. With all that this combination of old conformisms and emerging markets brings, which I would argue is a sort of a vindictive resentment that can be deployed for political effects. The chest thumping, the cruel vengeance, uh, you know, one breathes today in uh, the urban air uh, across liberal democracies. It doesn't have to be Israel. It doesn't have to be India. It doesn't have to be United States. It doesn't even have to be Britain or France right now. Forget Italy, where uh, a far-right party has just been elected to power uh, some months ago. It, 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 it's, it's not because the middle class believes in rights um, for all. The common argument is that these are people who resent being left behind by globalization. I don't think so. I, I don't think that uh, the large-scale mobilization, uh, successful mobilization of the voting public uh, and, and communities across Europe, across uh, South Asia, North America too, is somehow a result of populations left behind resentful populations left behind by globalization whose benefits they did not get. Quite to the contrary, the communal majority, if we were to walk in Ambedkar's wake, is a sort of middle class bound by old conformisms and emerging markets that is, is shockingly non-ideological. It does not even believe in rights so to speak. It only believes in obedience as a political value. Even hypocrisy has lost its shock value, right? Uh, the only thing it does believe in uh, is the right of the majority to always be proven right every single time. And only now the, the real shift is that this, this entitlement to be proven always right has aligned or has this class aligned electorally to create the political condition, this political condition, uh, this sort of low-intensity generalized tyranny uh, that we, we've called in one of the earlier episodes the new form of constitutional cruelty, or rather the neo-democratic condition. To understand 
The majoritarian condition today is to not understand it along party lines or along voting patterns, uh, although that is a very significant and crucial part of this. It is to understand, it is to grasp the modern majority as a new sort of coalition of attitudes, of attributes, and above all, vices. There are two sort of very different directions in which uh, this sort of takes us. Just first to come to a possibly oft-discussed strand, but I'd still like to hear how you think about it. You said that, say, this middle class, um, this this common narrative that they're, they're, you know, they've been left behind does not hold. Around the world, what makes majorities so resentful of minorities? What in the figure of the majority predisposes it to be at once threatened by the minor and um, the need to threaten, to, to repeatedly make the minor feel, you know, in quotes, in their place? It's, it's uh, perhaps the more... Um I mean, there, there, are, there are two or three ways to approach this question. And I, I would think that rather than asking what makes them resentful, perhaps we could deepen or, or, or further elongate, in fact, the question uh, and ask what in our political modernity allows for or what in, in our system of government, uh, which is democratic self-government, actually allows this to become a governing principle. If, for example, there could be many reasons why majorities fear minorities. This is not new. You could go to the late Middle Ages. You could go to even Renaissance Europe. Uh, you could go to the remnants of that kind of uh, banishment of entire populations. Things, th th you know, uh, Think here of Jewish communities in Renaissance Italy. Uh, flung outside major towns, uh, living as outcasts. So the history and, and, and the, the politics, the history and politics of that sort of banishment is not always a function of resentment. Although resentment now is undeniable, a certain kind of rage is undeniable, but it gives us a certain, while it gives us a certain uh, insight into the majoritarian condition, it is not enough to simply argue that we live in an age of anger or resentment. It's simply not enough. I do not think that that has a lot of theoretical power to illuminate the complexity of the social and moral complexity of what, uh, what we are witnessing. It is important to remember what they are revolting against. Now, the common, as you rightly point out, the common argument is that they're revolting against globalization. That's, that, that could, again, be partially true. But I think the, the, this is why someone like Ambedkar is important, because he returns us to the question of passivity, not to active uh, resentment, uh, but act, to, to, to acts of passive disdain that takes the form of uh, a certain kind of low-intensity combat, right? Populations armed for combat 
is a real thing now. I mean, think of the United States. So to, to, to understand the question you've raised, one needs to understand that there is something in popular democracy uh, uh, or electoral democracy or even constitutional democracy that allows for this kind of perversion of, of political faith. So let me take a very broad stab at this through the route of uh, a concept that we have dealt with before, which is constitutionalism. Right. Uh, and we need to remember that constitutionalism stands for one major principle among others, uh, which is the separation of powers. This is a major principle precisely because there is always a tendency in democracy for the majority to forget that there are limits to power in democracy. There are limits even to majoritarian power in a democracy. Otherwise, democracy would not have been associated with social justice. Otherwise, democratic freedoms would not be tethered to the idea of equality itself. So the modern uh, constitutional tradition in that way sees at the heart of democracy a certain limit, a certain measure of power, right? And in fact, it divides it between the executive, the judiciary, and the parliament as three pillars. One could add free press, uh, one devastating difference between, uh, between the United States and India, for example, is the status and the, the, the condition of the free press. Right? The United States, by and large, despite the propagandist machine that social media has become, still has something of a free press and a really free press in that way. Uh, the same cannot be said of other liberal democracies, including India. Um, so, you know, this distinct, uh, one could add a fourth pillar here uh, for our times, but essentially the modern constitutional tradition sees these three as pillars of government that are distinct, that are regulated mutually and regulate one another through a system of checks and balances and that therefore can manage the diversity and the complexity of a social and political system through a mechanism of even self-control. Now, we were saying earlier, in, uh, earlier when we were discussing the constitution that, and the neo-democratic condition that one of the defining issues of neo-democracy now is the making partisan of the judiciary worldwide. This is why we were saying that to use the word normative doesn't make sense in these times. To, in, the, in the American context, to, make, to, to deploy terms such as bipartisanship does not make that much sense uh, in these times. So coming back to Ambedkar, it is fair to argue that as a draftsman of the Indian constitution, as the president of the drafting committee, Ambedkar was and perhaps remains foremost, first and foremost, a constitutional theorist. But what we often forget in branding him as such, and we've gone over this when we discussed the word architect, right? Uh, what we forget is that branding him in such a fashion, uh, we let go of a thinker that he is, a thinker of political justice. That is to say, not of separation of power, but of futility of power, right? Futility of power precisely because this power, when left without measure or limit, will consume the majority someday. And it will not take long, as he says in the Constituent Assembly in the late 1940s, it will not take long for this kind of a majority bound by a contract, which in India is what I call the caste contract, um, voluntarily, 
not that the contract does not leave millions of its own citizens out, but it is still a contract. And Ambedkar argues that to understand the, 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 the limits of power is to first and foremost understand that there are also singularly violent societies in which those limits to power do not exist. And they do not exist precisely because sovereignty there is split into different kinds of majorities that under certain conditions become coalitions. Uh, in Mumbai, for example, we saw in the last few years, some of the right-wing parties, almost officially of the Hindu right, become, become guardians of liberal values before they were replaced by a party that is even farther to the right. So the idea that resentment drives the majoritarian condition explains only that much. What drives the, this majoritarian condition is a new form of political coalition. And we need to therefore understand that this coalition is not a product of or an effect of just one sort of political majority. Because for Ambedkar, the majority is not ever simply a political majority. It is, as you began, a communal majority. And that remains his expression that explains, continues to, I think, explain more and more as we see democracies unravel. Somewhere along the line, liberal democracies came to believe that they were driven by a certain kind of political nonviolence, a civilizational nonviolence. And that is where the critique of social violence was abandoned once it became a pervasive, complacent belief that we are not violent at all. You um, are absolutely right to, as you say, elongate that question, because in fact, that was where I was going next with it. The reason I asked about the fundamental nature of the majority outside even of democracy as a political form is precisely to, to now enter democracy and say, when the majority has a, has a predisposition, the majority as a construct has a predisposition uh, to mutate mm. from, mm. As, as you put it, from majority decision to majority rule, is that at the heart of what we call the risk of democracy, what you call the risk of democracy, or following Derrida, uh, we speak of, and, and it's something that we've spoken of earlier, uh, particularly in episode zero, as we were laying out the conditions under which mutant is being created, of democracy's autoimmune condition. Is there something fundamental to democracy in which um, this kind of mutation is almost unavoidably uh, to occur? Yes, and, and, and this is what we were saying uh, is so equivocal about democratic autoimmunity, that the suicidal strain in it, the strain in it that almost acts like a virus and attacks it from the within, from its, from its interior, cannot be simply a matter of resentment. 
there is in 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 democracies and in the majoritarian condition a profound sense of righteousness it is powerfully of course not to deny it is powerfully governed by a sense of defeat the majority the communal majority is communal precisely because it believes that it has always been defeated something has always been taken away from it it has it has always lost something that there is a certain sort of uh, subjugation it has always endured for ironically no fault of its for no cowardice on its part that resentment is 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 very very real but there is also along with it a certain kind of righteousness and what is righteousness uh, this perhaps uh, brings us to the other concept today that uh, you have you have invited us to reflect on which is mastery resentment comes from a sense of uh, being weakened being threatened uh, having lost out uh, being subject to a certain kind of theft um, righteousness is basically mastery it's inverse but practiced by the same who are resentful righteousness is mastery speaking the language of ethics or even ritual propriety even purity uh it is not uh, you know it is it is a rectitude shorn both of the commitment to integrity in in the private realm and a commitment to dignity in the public realm which uh you know you call elsewhere very accurately a uh, uh, superiority in public and victimhood in private right and of course these are flipped too these are flipped at times and in that sense righteousness also immediately can become entitlement so what is autoimmune about democracy is that the master and the oppressed can quickly exchange places or let us put it even more um starkly the sense of mastery the sense of being a master can quickly mutate into a sense of being perennially defeated and weak so in a in in a democratic context these two senses of being always defeated and always right produces the sense of autoimmune almost suicidal politics that we uh, associate today with the kind of social combat low intensity warfare even in in democracies and and nothing hurts democracy more than this affinity the silent affinity to always be right to always be the master right you bring us to mastery our other word for this episode and to me it has always seemed uh, a particularly sort of demanding idea to think about politically because the idea of mastery in itself holds so many meanings and such a grip i think on our imagination to have mastery of something has always for instance stood for the highest form of skill and artistry you know a perfection of a craft and in that sense the mastery of something has also always involved submission we've all heard stories of coaches pushing athletes to breaking point or musicians for example i think here of a small story recounted by you know uh, the the famous ustad shujaat khan son of the legendary late ustad vilayat khan shujaat is seventh generation of the imdad khan gharana and himself one of the finest sitar players in the world 
and he has spoken uh, you know publicly and in conversation with me of how his father would push him when he was 3 years old to train so relentlessly on the sitar and with such unforgiving rigor that his fingers bled and still his father would not let him stop and you know you think that's all the story but then later he found his father in another room weeping and this kind of experience and understanding of mastery you know the pursuit of it but also the exercise of it uh, by the father in this case i think deeply complicates our understanding of the idea of mastery because we can see it tip over into cruelty into rule over another but we can also see a sort of purity a sort of excellence a sort of ritualistic necessity almost uh, you know to it how does this kind of mastery acquire a political life or are they different when you refer to mastery yeah i mean uh, uh, that sense of mastery is very important to remember and that is mostly the sense in which the word is used mastery is often used for for excellence for command for uh, deep knowledge for unsparing rigor for an absolute control over the senses control over organs that's in fact that's exactly why i asked the question to to ask whether how mastery enters a political life is through some veneration of it because it seems to signal somebody's right almost earned the right to rule over us yeah and and that that creates this 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 connection between mastery of let's say um an art or which is associated often in in many traditions with mastery of the soul uh is inseparable from political mastery from an overwhelming desire to dominate uh we sometimes for, for, forgive uh, a lot of these uh domineering and dominating tendencies among artists among you know our movie stars because we believe that their command over this one skill filmmakers come to mind uh their command over this one particular skill their absolute mastery allows them or should allow them to transgress other forms of uh conduct that are not only insulting but humiliating to those around them there has always been in mastery a certain slippage and this is the slippage that we have been talking about for the last few minutes the slippage of self righteousness into a certain form of um mastery uh over others it's important to remember especially in a religious universe and in a time when religiosity drives so much of our legislative and and even constitutional events if if these are anything short of events that we are witnessing right now in the courts that a certain notion of self sacrifice will always lapse into or tip over into the sacrifice of the other a certain striving for mastery of a skill in in this case that you bring up of of a musician letting his no forcing his son to practice until his fingers bled is a kind of is the kind of ritualized cruelty that we often consign to the private realm but there is something uh, something of a profound humanism in there which when it 
is given a political vent becomes what we have called political cruelty. And it's important to remember that these are distinct elements only insofar as they are practiced across the thresholds of the private and the public. But there's nothing that tells us either in history or our present that this boundary, this line, to use Jurisch Klar's expression, will hold. This line between the private and the public actually holds. Um, when you were posing this question, the thing that came to mind about autoimmunity and the virus is that if you look at the pandemic response, especially in, in, in large countries and with very large populations, you realize that not only does this line not hold, the mastery of one, the mastery of a skill, an art or a science can take on forms or unleash forms of mastery and domination that can have devastating political consequences at the very time that one mastery, one form of mastery or scientific technique is saving lives, its other side is taking it or splitting societies apart. They, and, and they do happen simultaneously. We witnessed an immense solidarity, a new world of small charities and collective goodwill and volunteer ambulances uh, carrying, ferrying oxygen to uh, citizens left behind by their own governments, a solidarity produced in the face of vulnerability on the one hand, and at the same time, a crushing desire to overpower the enemy. And only briefly was this desire to crush the enemy targeted at the virus. And that was a very small, very small portion of humanity, the scientists who wanted to master a science here in this case, who were involved in crushing this enemy. Now, the broader point here is that to understand democracies, to understand this desire, not the specific enemy. This is what Derrida is calling the autoimmune. The virus, the enemy might change, but the desire at the heart of democracy is to overpower, is to dominate, is to master, right? Mastery, uh, or as it is often called in political thought, sovereignty is the heart, even popular sovereignty is at the heart of democratic degeneration and autoimmunity. And so the desire to overpower the virus produces, as we saw, new visions of mastery and dependencies over the masters both of which lead vast swaths of population to, as we now clearly recall, turn to idols, to idioms and rhetorics of power and divinity that seemingly were higher than that of ordinary mortals. Even political leaders acquired, you know, a certain godlike aura. You were talking in, in an earlier episode about how India gloated the violent effectiveness with which the lockdown was imposed and millions of people were flung, sometimes on foot, from one part of the subcontinent to, uh, to another. There was a kind of obedience, perhaps even servitude, that is unthinkable without unpacking the notion and the structure, most importantly, of, of mastery at its heart. Those who obey most unquestioningly are actually masters of something else. And that crushing sense of discipline is at the heart of both.
I think, um, I mean, the question that comes to mind and it links back to when we spoke of courage, hmm. uh, both uh, in the in the context of the constitution and of cruelty, in whose hands, in, in what figure, resistance in the end uh, to this kind of democratic mutation in which majorities run away with uh, not just mandates, but with with the very the very principles that many democracies have um, you know sanctified in their in their constitutions are now what those majorities that have come into being you know precisely because of that democratic structure hmm. now run away with hmm. does democracy have a figure an idea that stands as a bulwark against this propensity. Who are those in a democracy that refuse to be mastered? And who is that figure? And is that the figure that we are in search of in democracies mm-hmm. today? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and we spoke of, for, of courage uh, earlier on in, in, the, in, in the podcast. This is a very difficult question where this courage might come from. It's not, it's not clear to me where it is, except in uh, some, will, some communitarian uh, theorists have argued come from small communities and uh, um, people who believe in the commons. Um, electorally speaking, it almost necessarily now as a rule, at least in, in the United States and Europe, comes from, from the young voters. From, from the younger generations. It's not coming from the more mature uh, class, caste, or racial groups of voters. So um, can it come from the free press? We have evidence to the contrary, um, at least uh, in India. I, 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 I think I'm limited here in, in, in any sense or by any sense of specific groups that will bring a certain kind of democratic um, or revive a certain kind of democratic capacity to judge better. But I'm not, I'm not um, pessimistic about it. it. It might come and it might not come. What I will say in my own limited sense of it is that we need to first understand the ambiguity and the equivocal nature of this democratic contract. It's democratic and not post-democratic because it has um, not just free and fair elections behind it, but it has a certain kind of combined and collective will behind it. This is the problem with popular sovereignty, that it can often end up compromising, compromising civic freedoms. Um, Sovereignty and freedom have always been in tension. Sovereignty always seeks a certain kind of divine intervention, something transcendent. Um, Freedom is always marked by a certain awareness of our finitude, of our coming end. And it produces two very different kinds of politics, right? Uh, The question, therefore, uh, if if I understand you correctly, uh, is can that vision of sovereignty, of popular sovereignty, always unfree. Sovereignty is always unfree because it's always tainted by the wrath of God uh, or it's a ruse for those who use God to indict and condemn others to death. Can that sovereignty, a very 
theological vision of power ever give us freedom? That's the that's the question. And and to return to that question is to ask to ask and try and understand the everyday forms, the social forms, the moral forms in which this sovereignty expresses itself. And one very powerful way in which it expresses itself, even as you were saying among artists, is through this vision of mastery. And I think part of why the majority today, the majoritarian condition today needs to be understood through mastery is precisely because in letting the other master oneself by choice cannot ever stand on its own without a certain affinity within the self too for mastery this is what we you know we've been saying it's part of pro- the part of the democratic impasse right now is that we are stuck with a, a question about popular sovereignty whether it will hold, whether it's just, whether it's fair. No, it's not. But the problem is to break down or disaggregate sovereignty into the kinds of and the conditions of mastery that it produces. And to come and return to the kind or to the figure of citizen and her or his or their selves, themselves, of which they are a part. Who is this to, to, you know, to reformulate what you just asked? Who will really resist? Someone who believes in a certain kind of mastery or someone who believes in a certain kind of non-mastery is the question. Because in the end, we, we must recognize that the self always harbors some desire for self-mastery, for it to be so easily dominated or feel dominated, or feel defeated, for it to start seeing in mastery even the unconditionality of true love, for it to begin to see in unilateralism, which is a ruse of sovereignty, the sacrifice of true love. We see in, in certain forms of self-mastery a certain kind of self-love. Again, to take your example, artists are a good example of that. There is no artist who does not have a profound, deeply marked sense of self-love. Art might not be possible um, without that sort of arrogance uh, or love of oneself. And of course, this giving oneself to domination, a craft through self-sacrifice, in other words, letting oneself be mastered, is barely half as brutal in its outward form as it sounds. In that sense, the artist's hand bleeding is not brutal. It does not produce that social effect that we can call adequately call cruelty or political cruelty at least. But that does not mean it is any less remorseless, any less tactical, any less diligent, any less thought out and deliberate. This is why I, I was saying that the first loss of freedom begins not in a moment of violence, but in a moment of nonviolence. When the self chooses to lose itself to its master, voluntarily, in love even. And it does so not to forget the temptation to mastery, which it will always remember, let us know, but to simply know of the pleasures of mastery more intimately. This love of mastery is what produces, to follow Marx, a condition of voluntary servitude. This is the modern social contract. It is not a signature a relationship of signage between two equals, as the normative tradition argues. 
It is a love of mastery. It is a desire to know mastery more intimately, including self-mastery, right? To bear witness to it from close quarters, to seek in its coercive power. Again, your artist comes to mind, right? A certain paternal coercion, right? Which produces a certain vision, desire, and effect of excellence, is also to know and love mastery for its own sake from the closest quarters, right? And the subject happily subjects itself to that intimacy, to that intimate brutality or cruelty. And to understand democracy today, to understand where this resistance you desire come from, is to first understand that this, that this happiness in mastery is the same as the resentful vengeance that drives mastery. That self-mastery is never too far from tipping over into our desire for mastery, total domination over others. And that the modern social contract has never been able to free, twist free of this desire. That's a really stark insight, Eshwari. I think the propensity, the love almost of submission to a master. My question about where this resistance will come from was not to isolate necessarily a specific group of people or a particular figure, as much as to think about uh, more closely of what the figure of a resistor does for the rest of the polity in a democracy. You know, those who, whether out of indifference or lack of courage, or sometimes, as you illuminate, out of the seductive quality of submission to a masterful figure, the ones who don't resist. In, in recent years in India, you know, in the political landscape as it's played out, there have been three substantial, moving, powerful, and and very public acts of resistance, you know, the women of Shaheen Bagh, the CAA protest, and the farmers who spent an entire year in an act of civic protest that I think has remade our understanding somewhere of what is possible in a democracy at a time when we have lost the sense that the citizen can count for something. And so I wanted to return to how we should think about the figure of the resistor and why a democracy needs to stand behind that figure. It may not be your fight. It may not be your own resistance. It may not even be, frankly, your own courage. But that courage in a democracy that someone shows is always a courage on your behalf. I, of course, lay a substantial responsibility for this present moment at liberalism's door, uh, you know, which always seems to obsess with the individual right and yet with collective indifference. But to my larger point, therefore, is there something the figure of the resistor gives us in a democracy? Yeah, and, and I'm glad you, you try and end on this very optimistic note on the figure of the resistor. But that is exactly what we, we have been saying, right? That resistance now looks, on the one hand, extremely glib, or some denigrated even as Vogue, um, on the one hand, and the, on the other hand, it's always on behalf of someone else. We are always rooting for the resistor uh, because they fight on our behalf. But 
we will in fact not take inconvenience. The urban citizen will not take inconvenience for resistance. It will, it will simply always take choose convenience over resistance, right? So it's always on behalf of the other. Uh, and that, that is an enigma. I mean, it's one and at the same time, a problem that is very suitably and very appropriately reflected in, in how urban uh, populations have actually come to live and understand their own place in politics. They think they're political because in some countries they vote. In other countries, to be political is to first fight the right to vote, fight to secure the right to vote. Even that is not guaranteed in certain democracies. So we are talking of a very, um, uh, a very graded topography here. Ambedkar used to call this a graded system of inequalities. It's not a simple fight between sovereignty and the, res and the unequals. It is a very graded system of inequality in which at least once everyone feels, at least once, that they, they are free, right? And that is the seduction or the enchantment of this sort of, uh, this sort of mastery, uh, as, as we were saying. Um, to me, I think the, the, the farmers' protests were unprecedented. Um, it, it forced, uh, it forced uh, a prime minister who barely takes press conferences, if ever, to seek forgiveness uh, officially in public. And that is not nothing. In fact, that is a powerful indication of what might be possible when certain visions of the commons, of the common claim, of the common life can really be mobilized around a cause to, to fight back for a certain kind of social right. What I've been trying to perhaps parse out here is whether visions of mastery and charm and desire, which is what mastery is, it's a desire, can, can produce the sort of resistance that will that will rescue democracy. And this is where the limits of the social contract, of the modern contract, comes into full view. Charles Mills uh, has written very powerfully about the social contract always being mired in the racial contract. And in the wake of Ambedkar, I want to say that the social contract has never been free from what I would like to call uh, the caste contract. Right? In fact, the, the, the most sophisticated modern form of this mastery we have been talking about is the contract. Right? A certain uh, love of, as we were saying, old world conformism combined now with a certain desire for a presence in the emerging markets. And uh, a leading Indian movie star uh, is celebrated for being globally popular and Muslim, and his films are watched for that reason, for that celebratory reason. I mean, he is a genuine movie star, and so the movie is watched also for that reason. But the moment you make this representation of mastery, uh, uh, this man who is a singular master of his craft represents a certain kind of mastery. And that representation now is meant to symbolize something broader 
this is this is where your point about liberals and liberalism comes to the fore with with stark clarity he suddenly becomes representative of some other form of the social contract between a movie star and his fans he suddenly mutates into a democratic symbol who is in contract with the masses which often happens in large movie making cultures but but the fact that he's a muslim in a predominantly vindictively majoritarian country gains a salience and then he follows it up by doing a voice over for the for the new parliament and you realize that mastery is also a certain kind of representation it's a play of signs it is a desire that tips always over it will always tip over from one set of signs into another and the most inverted normative form of this desire for mastery is the contract for unlike what it seems to normatively suggest the contract is a relationship of domination its most sophisticated modern articulation is interest sometimes it can even appear as disinterest its most sophisticated modern doctrine to come to your point is liberalism and insofar as liberalism is the most thorough system of individual interest and rights the most thorough system that combines conformism with the buccaneer freedom of the markets it is appropriate that it is within that kind of liberal worship of mastery of excellence that mastery acquires sovereignty acquires domination acquires its own rectitude its sense of always being right and that defines the majoritarian condition the majority can never be wrong we're we're going to close at this point because i think um in fact rather than going forward this might be a time and for listeners who have not necessarily followed us in sequence uh the time to go back to annihilation and the time to go back to that utterly um radical concept text and and imaginary in which no individual small acts no individual resistances no graded uh, incremental gains will do annihilation as the destructive creative act of reimagining our political life is where we began and where we need to return to at this moment we'll be back with this dictionary join us again for the next episode of mutant <laughs>